This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, community control of the police was a goal of the Black Panther Party that has now been taken up by activists nationwide. Political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal says the Democrats have impeached Donald Trump, but they will not bring him to justice. And a professor of women's and gender studies has some insights into black girl magic. But first, the United National Anti-War Coalition, UNAC, is planning a series of peace offensives for the new year. One problem with organizing against war is that most Americans don't even know that economic sanctions are as deadly as bombs and bullets and are a form of warfare. We spoke with UNAC organizer Sarah Flounders. Well, that's a great and important part of the need for this conference. It's uh, February 22nd, 23rd, 24th. We're excited that it's going to be hosted at the People's Forum in New York, which is a spectacular space. But it really is to raise in the sharpest way the expanding U.S. wars, regime change plans, policies of a national endowment for democracy in, in trying to destabilize one country after another, talking about the use of sanctions as the real weapon of choice of starving down countries, creating artificial famines all over the world. How do we alert the movement that the wars are changing, refining, and they are accelerating also at home in the most profound ways in a war against migrants, in continued and expanded political repression, in what's become every day the level of racist violence of the police. So we want to address, as UNAC, the United National Anti-War Coalition has in the past, the wars at home and abroad, and talk about how it's one war. And we have a spectacular lineup of very serious, committed thinkers, activists, and organizers that are coming in for this conference Folks can look at it online at unacpeace.org, but I think the important part of it is to look at the speakers, at the workshops that are being organized, and uh, the plenary sessions, and, and just be part of this discussion. Possibly one of the problems with organizing a truly national and deep anti-war movement is that sanctions, the weapon of choice, as you called it, aren't considered to be wars by most Americans at all. Well, that's the real challenge we face. How to explain sanctions as the most dire extreme form of economic war that really are responsible for the deaths of far more people than guns and bombs. Creating artificial famine, really using a form of germ warfare to deny countries the most basic medicines. 
destabilizing economies, creating hyperinflation, preventing the import even of fertilizers and food processing, denying batteries for spare parts. What does this do to one country after another? And it's now U.S. is employing sanctions against 39 countries, and that list is growing. That's a third of the population of the world. So this is an expanding weapon. It's part of a war on the world, but it is trying to get countries to bend their knee to U.S. demands by strangulation of the most vulnerable part of the population. Medicine, everyone who needs any supplies at all suddenly can't get it. Most Americans couldn't name 39 nations that they feel are adversaries of the United States. They'd name three or four or five, maybe. But 39, that's that's beyond the imagination of most of the American population, that many enemies. Well, that's exactly. They're countries that are never even been listed. I mean, we, we might all know of the impact of sanctions on Venezuela blockade for decades, six decades against Cuba, 40 years against Iran, the uh, sanctions now on Russia and on China. But is anyone really thinking about the impact of the sanctions in Zimbabwe or the Central Africa Republic, Mali, Guinea-Bissau, Nicaragua, Laos, Myanmar, one country after another, and you could check on the news, and there's 10 other countries that are being actively threatened right now with a new level of U.S. sanctions if they don't follow enormous number of demands. And these sanctions are imposed by the U.S. Treasury Department, the Commerce, the State Department, Department of Defense, by presidential diktat, by congressional resolutions. They just come one after the other. They are a complete violation of international law and conventions. It's against the UN Charter and the Declaration of Human Rights to do anything that targets defenseless civilians. And yet it is now the weapon of choice. So we're, we're organizing a big international campaign on sanctions. We've set targeted days of coordinated action, which is March 13th to 15th. We have a website that thousands of people have signed on for. What's most exciting is we now have the call to action in 15 languages that different people around the world have translated from Korean to Urdu to Arabic and Farsi, along with European languages uh, and Spanish and Portuguese, so important in Latin America. So there is a lot of participation by different countries talking about what sanctions is doing to them, talking about can we coordinate an action. So it's a, it's a big effort. Can we focus the attention of the movement here on the new form that U.S. wars are taking? They've always used sanctions. You could go back to Woodrow Wilson talking about what a great weapon this is. So this is an old method, but it's now a war on the world, the sheer number of countries that are being targeted and others that are being threatened by the sanctions. And it's something, this this sanctions kill campaign that we're going to be addressing in a big way at the UNAC anti-war conference in February. Both things, there are times that they come together in the political movement and we struggle to see if we can change how 
the U.S. agenda is understood, that whether it's Republicans or Democrats, there is a war on the world and they both vote for it almost unanimously. And every one of these sanctions resolutions, they sail through Congress on a voice vote. It's not even, can't even count the votes. They just all give a hurrah and there's new sanctions on still a different country. Possibly some of the reasons why the U.S. public is so unaware of the extent and nature of U.S. sanctions in the world is because the corporate media plays it down. For example, blaming Venezuela's problems not on the massive and almost total sanctions applied by this country over years, but on the failure of socialism. And the same thing with Nicaragua and Zimbabwe's problems are racked up as, well, Africans just can't govern themselves, etc., that's exactly, this is so true. This is a way in which I'm looking at articles, let's say, in the New York Times and major corporate media just this week. Major article on Venezuela, another on Nicaragua, another on Zimbabwe, and each one of them is blaming corruption, patronage, inept, and just the word sanctions in an entire article on Zimbabwe. It has just strangled everything, not a mention of sanctions. A major article on Nicaragua, again, all the blame on the government and one word mention of sanctions, just as part of the dislocation that's going on. And yet every one of these countries are absolutely targeted. And the same thing true for Venezuela. So it takes a huge organizational effort by the governments when they're targeted to find some way to mobilize the population just in order to feed the population, the most basic things, because if you can't get in, for example, the maize crop in Zimbabwe uh, because the fertilizer has been denied and storage facilities and equipment for the fields, you're going to have a major food problem. And then it's blamed on the government. The same thing in Venezuela, where there was really excellent health care paid for by oil revenues. They seized the oil revenues, froze every possible account that could be frozen, stopped the oil exports, and then denied even the importing of most basic medicines. So this creates a real problem, and it creates a problem especially for those who need medicines in order to in order to live, in order to survive. All of that gets shut down consciously. So this is really a very calculated war on civilians, the most vulnerable civilians. Venezuela has issued reports of 40,000 deaths directly due to the sanctions. North Korea, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, recent figures of 4,000 deaths based on shortages that are calculated to make it difficult for the government to provide what it had freely provided in the past. So we really need to address this, and it, it changes our understanding of what is going on on a world scale. Is it that countries are unwilling to do, or is it that the U.S. wants to control the economies of the world to extract greater and greater amounts of profit for just a handful of corporations, and they're willing to do anything 
in order to seize accounts, freeze accounts, literally confiscate them as they have done Venezuela, billions of dollars, Iran, the same thing. It's a very dangerous policy. You've described U.S. sanctions as a kind of piracy. Other folks look at it and see something even worse than piracy, which was a bunch of freebooting capitalist captains taking stuff from other big powers, but more like colonialism in the raw, when these Europeans just seized whole countries and fashioned whole sections of the world in ways that served only the home country, them. That's a great way to put it. It's based on looting on a systematic government level. And countries that had broken free and been able to provide some basis for uh, economic change and hope are now finding themselves directly in the crosshairs of this dying system that will do any looting in order to hold on. And it takes a response from within the U.S. because if it's silent here and countries are one by one facing this, then we're not really confronting it. That's why it's the purpose of the UNAC conference and it's the purpose of the sanctions campaign. How the wonderful activists, let's say, who focus on Cuba and there are other activists who focus on Venezuela or on Zimbabwe or on the wars here. How do they connect with each other and see that they're facing the same the same system? How do we have a, a sharper understanding of the way in which imperialism functions in this period? So I think we're learning a lot from this campaign. The meetings have been tremendously exciting. I, I will say the next meeting of, of the Sanctions Kill campaign in New York is January 4th. That's a Saturday afternoon. And the campaigns have been real learning exchanges where the different people involved from, from different countries exchange what they've done, the information. A lot of it is totally new to other activists. Uh, and that's what that's what a movement needs to do. If it's not looking at things in a fresh and new way, if we're not learning how the system operates, and also in ways that encourage people to act, we can't be defenseless in the face of uh, these crimes. Well, of course, an anti-war movement has the same problem as all progressive movements in the United States, which is how does one break into or through the corporate narrative? But these days, almost everyone is forced to listen 24-7 to all the blathering coming from Democratic presidential candidates, and hardly any of it is about war or the international situation at all. Unless we're addressing the wars and the repression here at home, we're not really addressing the real issues. And it immediately comes up, how do we pay for these things? Well, we can't possibly have health care for all. Every industrialized country in the world does, but you can't have it here because of the sheer amount spent on militarism. And that goes directly to the military corporations, oil corporations, the super profits. That can't be discussed and therefore it's cloaked by both political parties. You can see this even in the impeachment ridiculous theater 
that was held where it did not address the real crimes against the people of Trump. No, no. It was on something that was so academic that the average person couldn't follow the ins and outs of the Ukraine policy. Now, this is true in the presidential debates also. It's so structured to keep out any real challenge to corporate power and to try to line the population up against other countries, that the threat is coming from China, the threat is coming from Russia, or the threat is coming. It's amazing that Nicaragua can be considered an international terror threat to the U.S., but that's how even small Nicaragua, a couple million people, gets labeled. So that is where the attention and the media, the corporate media, so loyally goes. I think a lot of folks increasingly are seeing through this. And so our challenge is to try to strengthen and reinforce those who are looking for alternatives. And once again, give us the time and place and date of this upcoming UNAC anti-war conference. Thanks so much, Glenn. And just to say that uh, actually Glenn will be very much a part of this conference, so that we're, we're honored. And also Kevin Zeese and Margaret Flowers, Jamu Baraka, Rhonda Ramiro, Bayon, Joe Lombardo, Frank Chapman from the National Alliance Against Racism and Political Repression. We have a whole list of speakers and participants of workshops on February 22nd in the evening, Friday evening, 23rd and 24th in New York City at the People's Forum. You can register online. Seating is limited. People's Forum is a tighter venue than we've had before, although it's a spectacular space in Manhattan. So you have to register soon because once it's full, that's it. So I really do want to encourage people to register at unacpeace.org. Again, it's February 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. And I also want to encourage people to look at the sanctionskill.org for coordinated global actions on March 13th, 14th, or 15th, any one of those days. But our goal is to have actions in 100 cities around the world on that day against the U.S. weapon of starvation and disease. That's what the the U.S. weapon. How do we organize against it? So those are two campaigns well worth looking at, signing on in support, and helping move this forward. That was Sarah Flounders of the United National Anti-War Coalition, speaking from New York City. Last month, more than 800 activists from around the country gathered in Chicago to reestablish the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, with a focus on fighting for community control of the police. Making the cops accountable to the black community was a goal of the Black Panther Party. We spoke with Shepard McDaniel, known as Brother Shep, a veteran of the New York City chapter of the Panther Party. He would have liked to have attended the Chicago conference. Unfortunately, I didn't find out about it until after the fact. That's one of the problems we have, you know, with a movement now in general, but particularly when we're dealing with issues of police violence and terrorism that goes on throughout this country is that our communication among activists is not really where it should be. 
we're part of a coalition here in New York City of a number of organizations that initiated the New York City voter campaign for community control over the police. And initially that came out of a rise in interest and people getting involved in that that took place probably around the same time that you're talking about people getting together in Chicago. It's interesting you mentioned the Panther Party because, yes, we did focus on that in the late 60s in terms of doing that. And we were trained and teaching the community the, the validity of doing that. Not just the police, but all the institutions in our community should be controlled by the community itself and not from the outside, which still is what's going on today. Interesting, in the early 90s, when you had cases like in New York City of the Baez case, um, Adnan Louima, Armadou Diallo, and all those things were going on, and they were actually tens and even one time hundreds of thousands of people in the streets during the Giuliani regime that took place you know, for those police murders and terrorism that was going on in New York City. But we found that folks were demonstrating and then basically nothing else happened after that. So one of the veteran members, his ancestor now, Richie Perez, he founded along with other members of the Young Lords, the Justice Committee to deal with that whole issue. And um, we got together with him, you know, other former members of the Panther Party. And we um, began to do work with young people. We forged coalitions with the street organizations. We stopped the war that was going on between the Latin Kings and the Nietzsche's. And interestingly, the middle part of that truth was that they worked with the families who had lost their loved ones. From there, you got the Parents Against Police Brutality. And so that whole thing, we looked at, again, like I was mentioning earlier, that there was nothing that after the demonstration. And so we did do those actions of protecting the families in court, protecting their homes when the police would be harassing them during the trials. And then we said, well, we needed to do something else. So we came up with a seven-week training, which was basically anti-police terror and community control over police workshop, which would train participants to not just get the information, not just knowing your rights, but to actually put into place a system in their communities that would be more proactive instead of reacting to police murders, but to be prepared for it. And it started with seven weeks, and we are now up to 14 weeks because things have changed over those years since the 90s. And we now have ICE, immigration issues. We have police raids going on in the projects in New York City now using RICO to allegedly deal with gangs that are terrorizing the projects. And recently had the Bronx 120, where 120 youth were scooped up and locked up under conspiracy charges and, and the raids with the immigrants. We have raids in our communities under cabaret laws, which are archaic. So the police already knows. So um, there's raids going on all over the place. And so the whole idea that we have control over the police in our own neighborhoods is what spared us to having the voter campaign. One thing that I really found good from reading the transcript from the interview that I was sent from the National Alliance Spearheaded Conference in Chicago was the whole idea of the communities themselves maintaining their own unique way of do having community control. In New York City, we have 51 council districts. And just to cut to the chase, um, and then I'll get to the four points that we have in our campaign, is that we can have a referendum put on the ballot 
here in New York City if the city council does not want to put it through. And the people can actually vote once it's put on the ballot during election day to have their own particular council district have community control. And the four components of doing that are mandatory residency, no police officer in your precinct or your council district would be able to work in that neighborhood unless they live there. Their argument is that, you know, oh, there'll be corruption and all this other nonsense. If they're going to be corrupt, if they live there, they're going to be corrupt if they're not. They also say that, oh, we're afraid somebody might know where we are. But our whole answer to that is that if you live in a neighborhood, your children go to the same schools and go to the same houses, your family goes to the same houses of worship, and you shop in the same stores, you have a vested interest in that community. You're not just coming in there, doing your job, and then going up to the um, suburbs or to New Jersey or other areas where you don't really give a damn about the neighborhood that you're working in. So you actually are part of that community. The second part of that is that, and this will answer to the whole thing about corruption and all the rest of the excuses that they come up with, is that you have an elected community voice in that neighborhood. It's a body that's voted for by the community to regulate police policies and prevent police violations. These boards would have subpoena and investigative power and also hiring and firing abilities of those officers. Now, we're not talking about being able to create a community control of police mechanism in just one district, but putting this issue to a vote, to a referendum throughout the city so that different districts could opt to have their own community control of police mechanism. Exactly. For instance, if I'm a multimillionaire and I live on Park Avenue, obviously I'm not going to be interested in community control of the police because that's not my interest. All I want is the police to protect me and my property. So that particular council district and the council, city council member there would not be favorable to me. However, in the neighborhood I live in, which is controlled by the police, we would want the community to be able to vote yes, to choose that they want to control the police in that precinct and in that district. So every district, all 51, would have the opportunity to choose whether they do or do not want to um, control that precinct. But in order for the 51 districts to decide whether or not they wanted community control of police in their district, the referendum would have to pass citywide, right? Yes, that's where the vote comes in. Throughout the city, people would vote for it. The Community Review Board here in New York City, folks that were fighting to get more teeth into the Community Review Board, and people overwhelmingly over the PBA and the police unions, big campaign they had to make sure it didn't happen. Overwhelmingly, voters put it in like a, at least a good 80% of the New York City voters said, yeah, we want more power for the Civilian Complaint Review Board. So in other words, when given an opportunity, lots of folks will vote against the cops. Absolutely. I think at this point, yes, I think the climate, which I saw when I read that article in Chicago, is that I totally agree with that. And we do that the time is now to do this, especially with the whole idea of having a national campaign, which would be important for all the cities to um, be able to exchange information. You know, I mentioned the two tiers. I mean, even in terms of like I was reading in 
the article they're talking about, you know, sheriffs being elected. In our neighborhoods in New York, you have a precinct commander. They would also be elected by the community. And of course, have to live in the community, just like a sheriff is in a small town somewhere. And then last but not least, you would have an elected special prosecutor that has no affiliation with the district attorney's office or anything like that, but also is elected by the community itself. So those are the four tiers. Now, in Chicago, they've been pushing a community control of police measure for at least five years. And they've also had masses of people in the streets, tens of thousands sometime, in actions against police brutality and injustices. And so the organizers at the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression said, we have all these organizers. Let's throw them into the electoral campaign, not to make ourselves an electoral organization, but into this specific campaign to elect a lot more aldermen who would support community control of police. And they elected 19 after having only one who was in favor of community control before the election. But they had thousands of activists. Is New York up to that kind of grassroots kind of action? I would say that that is one of the problems that we have here. Uh, we actually started the campaign in 2016. You know, after two years of putting it together, doing all the research of the laws in the city and the state, and finding the, you know, everything that would be needed to get a referendum done uh, with the idea that if we could get the city council people to do what you're saying, you know, in terms of Chicago with the aldermen, to get those members to do that, that would actually be a, a lot faster route to get it done, you know, just meeting the mayor's approval after that. But our problem here in New York, Glenn, is that you have so many different organizations that are dealing with police brutality and terrorism and so forth. Some are reformist groups, some are revolutionary groups, some are just community-based organizations. And the whole problem here was the whole ideological differences. One group said, well, I don't deal with voting, so I, we don't want to get involved with that. Then you have another group that didn't like the way another group was working. Some groups were focusing just on the parents, using them for their own propaganda message. So there's all kinds of differences that did and really still do take place in New York. So that's our biggest battle here is to get people to see that, you know, no, this isn't a solution to doing that. I mean, for us, for my, for our group, you know, revolution is still the only solution as far as we're concerned. But if we can find a way to minimize police patrolling our communities like an occupying army, then we need to find ways to do that. And anybody and everyone can get involved in this. And just All you got to do is just vote for it. We have all this laid out on our website. We're about to relaunch actually next month. So we step back for a while because, again, the issues I just mentioned. But if they go to votecommunitycontrol.nyc, that's votecommunitycontrol.nyc, you can see the whole outline of the project and the campaign. You know, our principles of unity our statement of purpose, the four tiers that I mentioned, and all of that. And finally, are you and your comrades considering joining this reconstituted National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression? 
Absolutely. You know, because uh, even before we had started, there were, I know we, doing our research, we saw that there were efforts being made across the country to do this in different areas. One of my comrades, Aruba Ben Wahad, he actually had put a piece together trying to call for a national formation. And so, yes, we would definitely want to be part of that. Again, the only reason that I know I was not in Chicago and other people, we didn't know about it. So we didn't get word. I don't know if some folks here knew and kept it to themselves. <laughs> I don't know what the situation was, but I'm glad to see that it happened. And it looks very promising, especially the communications and information. I mean, we can learn how Chicago did what they did personally, you know, through meetings and, you know, face-to-face conferences and definitely the information that definitely would help us here. And I'm sure vice versa, whatever we do here would help them and then go all the way to the West Coast. You know, we can do that all across the country, just have a network that can communicate and work with each other to get this done. And for other folks in the New York area that want to do what they can to get the community to have control of the police, how do they reach you? Okay, they can reach me at Panther, that's P-A-N-T-H-E-R, Shep, S-H-E-P, Cat, C-A-T, at AOL.com. That's Panther Shepcat at AOL.com. That was Shepard McDaniel, or Brother Shep, formerly of the Black Panther Party in New York City. McDaniel is currently Community Affairs Director for the Universal Zulu Nation. Former Black Panther Mumia Abu-Jamal is the nation's best-known political prisoner, having spent 39 years behind bars in the death of a Philadelphia policeman. Abu-Jamal has been closely following the Democrats' impeachment of President Trump. After the U.S. House voted along party lines to impeach the U.S. President Donald Trump, headlines blared and pundits crowed about the news. But now what? It is all but certain that Trump will be acquitted by the U.S. Senate and the case essentially dismissed. While history books will note that Trump was impeached, beyond that, it will mean next to nothing, for he will not be removed from office. Without that, there is nothing. To men like him, impeachment is just a word, a nasty word, according to him. The Constitution? Just a scrap of paper. What matters is power. Nothing else matters. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. Justin Mujahid Khalibi is an activist doing hard time in the U.S. prison gulag. Khalibi is not as well known as Mumia Abu-Jamal, but he packs a powerful political analysis. Today at lunch, I was sitting with some of my homies from New York, who had, and one of them had asked when I had gotten involved for the first time in political struggle. When I told him it was at age 14 that I began to seriously identify myself as a communist, he was like, that's why they got you. You were doing too much at a young age. You were a legit political prisoner. That's when I turned the discussion around. Now, all of you are political prisoners. POWs, y'all were arrested. Y'all were not arrested. Y'all were captured by an enemy. 
we talked about how the term gang is used for formations of young black and brown men, while it's never seriously used to describe the greatest purveyors of violence in the world, the U.S. military. It's not used for middle or upper class white men who commit crimes or the police. So we got to the crux of the issue. They're afraid of these youth whom they label as gang members, not because of what they do, but what they can become if they get organized and politically educated. This is the main reason why the feds assassinated Fred Hampton, who was trying to merge what was then called the Blackstone Rangers, what is now the Black Peastones, with the BPP. This is why the state of California still killed Tookie, and it explains why whenever Bloods and Crips have a truce, the police break it up with Cointel Pro tactics. To that point, I was kicking it with my old head last night, and he was telling me about his mentor, Dr. Matulo Shakur. He said that every jail that brother goes to, he starts a truce between any black organization that are in conflict with each other. And you know what? He doesn't get any form of accommodation. No, he's greeted with an abrupt transfer to another prison. That's why if the BOP has their way, Dr. Shakur will never see another medium yard. He'll always be in the pen. Too much influence. That's what they say when you're a leader trying to educate the youth and get them out of self-destructive activities. It's reason enough to give Iman Jamil Alameen a gag order and transfer him from Georgia State Prison to ADX Florence Supermax, Colorado. And it's reason enough for a quote-unquote gang leader, even after he has reformed and renounced violence, to be stuck in that same underground, high-tech dungeon in 24-7 isolation for the rest of their natural lives. Security and good order of the institution, they say. And it's not only radicals and leaders with too much influence who get stuck in higher security prisons. It's those youth who I mentioned above, who are as well. Similar to how California State used to validate alleged gang members, the BOP has a similar process, whereby gang association becomes a public safety factor, a PSF, that permanently precludes one from going to a minimum security prison. One doesn't have to be a member of a particular organization either. Merely knowing and hanging out with one makes you an associate and therefore entire hoods can come under that designation. Youth under 25, they're automatically given a higher custody rating. You have a drug crime, higher. Criminal record, you in the pen now. You do the math. It's not for the security, discipline, and good order of the institution. It's America's war on black and brown youth. That was Justin Mujahid Kalibi speaking from Jessup Federal Prison in Georgia. Aria Holliday is a professor of women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. Holliday co-wrote an article in the black political journal Soul titled The Power of Black Girl Magic Anthems, Nicki Minaj, Beyonce, and Feeling Myself as Political Empowerment. We asked Professor Holliday just what is black girl magic? <laughs> black girl magic is a term coined by Kashawn Thompson in 2013. It really became kind of social media phenomena in terms of ways to think about and talk about celebrating Black women and all of the 
complexity of our experiences. And so thinking about Black Girl Magic, I, of course, with my co-conspirator, Dr. Nadia Brown, we wanted to think about what Black Girl Magic means on the lived experience level of young Black women, college-age women. Yes, you focused on millennial Black women and on these two artists, uh, Minaj and Beyonce, and you put them into a political context that many of us may not get. Explain to us why Nicki Minaj and Beyonce have such political import and importance. That's a great question. I think in the 21st century where many of our conversations around politics are diffuse, meaning over a lot of different areas, I think it's really important to think about the ways that music conceptualizes our political agenda. It always has. If you think about James Brown or Diana Ross or people earlier, these conversations have been happening for a long time in terms of music. And so putting Nicki Minaj and Beyonce in conversation with a kind of longer history of Black political empowerment through music, I think is really important to our discussion. And I think some people may pause in thinking about why Beyonce or Nicki Minaj represent a particular type of political movement. But I think that regardless of whether we agree with them or not, that they do represent a kind of ethos of Black political commitment in the 21st century. So that's why the article really focuses on those two women. You speak of these artists and others and their connection to Black political mobilization. I know that Beyonce and her husband, Jay-Z, have gone to the White House and hobnobbed with Obama on a number of occasions. But what's that got to do with political mobilization? Well, I think that Beyonce and her husband, Jay-Z in particular, have had a lot of conversations, had a lot of money involved, had a lot of foundations that are particularly tied to commitments of Black people, especially in Black communities where they're from, New York and Houston, but also in other places like New Orleans and California and all throughout the United States and globally. And so I think that beyond just what they've done, you know, with Barack Obama or with other people, they also have foundations and regular work that they do in Black communities that extends to the ways that Black people are represented in the politics of our nation, but also in the cultural context. Certainly, however, Beyonce could not be described as radical by almost any political definition. And yet you have her clumped together in this grouped together in your article with names like Harriet Tubman, Claudia Jones, Ella Baker, Frances Beale, Diane Nash, these uh, clearly, unarguably radical Black political mobilizers. I think that what radical Black politics means in the 21st century, especially when you're talking about how it's produced um, within the systems of the music industry and Hollywood means something a little bit different. And so somebody like Ella Baker or Francis Bill, Diane Nash, Claudia Jones are working outside of those systems in a way that folks like Beyonce and others are not. And so thinking about the ways that what we might consider Black radicalism operates in a kind of corporate entity, I think there are great examples of how to think about those things working together, right? Everyone is not always outside of the um, corporate context, but are possibly doing work that we can consider radical. Well, yes, people would contest whether radical politics can be nurtured in a corporate environment. 
Right, but I think that we have, historically, Black people have been involved in really changing the landscape of Black representation and Black political commitments through corporate entities, right? So even present day, there's conversations at the Supreme Court about how Black people can be engaged with corporate entities as a type of political movement, as a part of our human rights. And so I think that going even back to enslavement, Black people have always been thinking about how to participate in terms of the global project of consumerism. And that's really the kind of relationship that we're trying to connect in the article. We know that millennials and black millennial women, in fact, everybody under a certain age are active on Twitter. And you point out that black people are disproportionately active on Twitter. But you seem to equate that activity with political mobilization. Lots of stuff goes on in social media, and most of it is not what most of us would call political. I think that something like the Movement for Black Lives, or what's popularly known as Black Lives Matter, was both something that happened in community centers and book clubs and and conversations with people, but also happen on places like Twitter. And so I think that rather than separating the two as kind of distinct conversations, I think that they work together, right? Because many of the ways that, you know, for example, Black men and women are being shot down by police, right? Those get popularized on social media and then they get picked up by the news. So it becomes a conversation that all of us are a part of, whether you're active on social media or not. Those things get popularized and translated from the things that are happening on social media, but also the things that are happening in everyday life. Tell us in particular what Beyonce and Nicki Minaj represent in terms of this Black magic girl. Well, the young woman that we interviewed for this paper talked about Nicki Minaj and Beyonce in this particular song called Feeling Myself, where they are both representing Black women's self-confidence and women's empowerment, and also the kind of underlying conversation around political messaging that happens in music. And so many of the women that we interviewed say that they represented a type of celebration of Black girlhood and Black women that they don't normally see in other cultural products. Now, you organized a focus group, and specifically, you were looking at how folks grapple with Blackness. Yes, exactly. And so we really wanted to talk to these college-age individuals to think about how they're engaging Blackness as attached to kind of cultural and political engagement. So you were trying specifically to figure out how these social media and entertainment products and entertainment notables figured in with Blackness. That's exactly. We're thinking about how those cultural products are connected to the everyday lived experiences of Black people, specifically in a very white environment. We talked about predominantly white or majority white campuses. Again, I'm trying to figure out how cultural products that are certainly the product of the Black culture and the Black experience, the enjoyment of these cultural products somehow leads to Black political empowerment and how these young people felt that their lives were enhanced by these cultural products. Well, I think first it's important to, again, connect the argument that we're trying to make around 
the contemporary conversation with the one that's historical, right? And one person who comes to mind who does this kind of work around cultural products and music, but also around Black identity is someone like Nita Simone, right? So she was radicalized in the conversation with the civil rights movement, with the murder Megan Evers and others, and then, right, she starts to make music in relationship to those identities and those questions that she has about Blackness. And so when we connect that to a contemporary conversation around how Black college students, particularly Black college women, are identifying themselves with cultural products, especially those produced by very popular Black women like Beyonce and Nicki Minaj, it is really a conversation about their own identity development and how cultural representation both encourages but but also maybe directs them in different ways about who they think they are. And so the, the questions and conversations are really around those things. And of course, Nina Simone, among many other artists of that era, produced many songs with really deep political implications. With Beyonce, probably her most overtly political act was the Black Panther performance she did along with her crew at the Super Bowl. Well, she also produced, I think, the music video formation has a lot of context, particularly around post-Katrina New Orleans and conversations around, you know, police brutality and what Black people should do in response to the police. And as you already mentioned, her husband, Jay-Z, has done that for a long time. And so I think that both of them represent different ways that we might think about cultural products being related to a political statement. And I think that that happens regardless of whether it's stylized as something that's beautiful or stylized as in a way that's particularly Afrocentric or, or something else, right? All of those things are working together in a video-like formation or in her performance, as you mentioned, and she's positioning herself as a Black Panther. Well, what do you think future movements will look like as people become more deeply embedded in social media, more connected, deeply connected with corporate employed artists? I think that we'll see, and as we've been seeing, a kind of both and approach happening. So we'll see people like Beyonce and Nicki Minaj and other people um, more popularly having these conversations in a corporate environment. Um, but we're also seeing people like independent artists like Rhapsody or J. Cole, who then became an artist under um, Jay-Z or Chance the Rapper, who are independent artists having very political statements and having these conversations, but they also become very popular because they're conversations that connect to a Black population. And so I think that we'll see both these things happening in corporate environments and outside of them, but all of those things are converging in social media spaces. So people are talking about Chance the Rapper and they're talking about Jay-Z's alignment with the NFL at the same time and what those kinds of connections mean for Black people, both in corporate environments and outside of them. In your talks inside and outside your focus group, do you get the impression that these millennials that you've been studying are politically serious in the long haul and want profound change in society, transformational change? I definitely think so. The conversations that I've had across the board with young Black people, millennials or Gen Z or otherwise, is that they really want to see massive changes. So a conversation that's happening right now 
is that many of the movements around and objectives of the civil rights movement, particularly around voting rights, housing, segregation, those kinds of things, we've figured out kind of the process of integration, but we haven't figured out, you know, the wage gap or educational opportunities and access or voting rights or any of these things. And I think that the young people that I've talked to, as well as the old people, to be honest, everyone is invested in changing those conversations. So we still have work to do. And I think that everyone is invested in the work that needs to be done for a change to actually happen. Well, you know, everybody is in principle for voting rights, but not everybody's in principle for taking billionaires off of their power pedestal or community control of the police and other transformational changes. Right. But I think that Black people, young or old, are open to those conversations. I think that regardless of how it may have been positioned previously, that we've seen kind of a political uprising around Black people wanting to be invested in those conversations in various ways. There are people who are creating gardens and food sanctuaries and urban environments where there are no grocery stores and teaching Black people how to farm their own food. Or there are Black people who are specifically working in schools and creating school systems and institutions that are supportive of Black education for Black children. There are people who are working in corporate environments that really are thinking about how to infuse the money that they make in corporate entities with foundations and organizations that are at the grassroots level for Black people. And so although I think there are some issues around how Black people might want to be connected to certain radical traditions, I think that there is work around change that may eventually get to a radical movement. One thing that we hope to gain in terms of this conversation around uh, Nicki Minaj and Beyonce and political empowerment is that the conversation, particularly for young Black women in this moment, is one that is both aligned in their particularities of Blackness, but also in their particularities as women. And so I think that one thing that someone like Beyonce represents is that you can both be feminine and effeminate, but also have a very political commitment to Blackness. And I think that that's a really shift that we're seeing in terms of popular culture and where Black women feel that their work is being done both for their own identities and for kind of a global consciousness. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.